With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is TV Take from Variety. I'm Daniel Holloway. This week, we talk with Kurt Minifee, host of Fox NFL Sunday, about the long-running football pregame show, which will be inducted in April into the NAB Hall of Fame. Later, Variety's Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke will discuss the new series Black Monday and the other two. Stay tuned. Kurt Minifee, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you walk us through your process for the week leading up to the Fox NFL Sunday telecast? Sure. You know, it's one of those things where I go, you know, the football season starts the Sunday after Labor Day. And then it ends Super Bowl Sunday, which is the first Sunday in February. I say pretty much look at the calendar. You give me a day of the week. I can tell you what hour I'll be doing because it's pretty regimented from a certain standpoint. From the, I like starting when I tell people the story after we finish the show. So you start with your Monday because that's kind of the weekend for us, having to work on Saturdays and Sundays. So I try to take Mondays off, and, and that kind of is the day that I'd like to try and do stuff with the wife. It doesn't always work that way because you wind up reviewing what happened on Sunday. You do several radio interviews, you know, maybe a newspaper interview or a website or a podcast or something. But in general, I try to have Monday as my day off. Then Tuesday is when the work really starts. Because then you're able to start focusing in on the games that are coming up that week. And you know whichever four games, eight games that Fox will have, those are going to be the big games we're going to talk about on the pregame show. In addition to if there's a big Sunday night or Monday night games. But you start honing in just a little bit on the matchups and the focus um, really becomes more specific. Then as Wednesday comes on, for me, and everybody does it differently, I know you know Howie will spend forever watching tape and film and as the host of the show, I don't need to watch as much tape or film. Let's say it that way. So I, I will wind up reaching out to people and just touching base, people in the league, general managers, coaches, players. Um, and in a way, that's become easier over time because everybody does everything by text now. Right. So you, you text someone, they text you either right back or they text you a little bit later, but you don't have to pick up the phone, try to catch them in their office at a certain time like you used to when I started doing this job, which was a big challenge by being on the West Coast, and you have to try and catch coaches on the East East Coast, and most of them are in the office at you know, 6.30, 7.30 <laughs> right. in the morning. That's their free time. So by texting, it's become much easier. So Wednesday, you kind of start that process of reaching out. On Thursday, I have a conference call that I do with uh, the one writer on our show, and our show is 70% ad-lib, but there's sponsored elements and, and feature lead-ins and things like that we have to write, um, and the producer of our show, Bill Richards. And so we'll have a conference call that lasts... 30 to 45 minutes, somewhere in there, really kind of breaking down a rundown for the show. And that's kind of the first time things kind of come to come together. Uh, then Bill will share the rundown that we've talked about with everybody else on the show via email. On Friday, then it's really specific to focus to, to call in with people because I know, okay, we're going to talk about the Packers offense here in this segment more than just that game. So you try and tune that in. I'll start just a little bit of whatever writing I have to do. Saturday morning is the big one. You get up, I finish all the writing, do the show. 
do all my notes. I try to have notes on every single game that goes on the NFL because a show is live. Um, the pregame show, we have halftime, and then the OT, which is the postgame show, which, you know, ratings-wise, it's a top-five show, network, primetime. So you get a lot of people watching, and it's the wrap-up of, of the day. So you want to know what these numbers and what these standings and all these things mean. So I try to have a, a note on every team, on every game, what things mean, who's leading uh, this category, stats, all those things. So I'll spend a lot of time doing that on Saturday morning as well, early during the day on Saturday. Saturday afternoon, we get together at the hotel. I watch college football, usually with Jimmy Johnson and, and Terry Bradshaw. Um, about 5 o'clock or so, this is Pacific time, we all go our separate ways, go to our rooms, and watch whatever the late game is on college football that Saturday night. And then Sunday morning, get up. Jimmy likes to get over at 2.30 in the morning because he's 75 years old and lives on the East Coast, so he doesn't change his time when he comes out here. Uh, but I get in about 5.30, and then everybody else is in right around 6.00. We start our day with a morning meeting. Uh, we get dressed, get on the set by 7 a.m. Uh, we have a rehearsal, which is different than a real rehearsal. <laughs> real rehearsal is what the producer begs us to do when he needs to time something out. <laughs> rehearsal, otherwise, is just, hey, okay, we know we're going to talk about the Packers-Vikings here. And Jimmy will take up space and go yada, yada, yada. And Howie will do the same thing because we want the natural reaction when you get on the air. But it's more for blocking, more for lighting, you know, more technical than anything else for the director. So we do that. We check in with the, whatever live crews we've got from game sites. Um, and then we're on the air at 9 o'clock. And that's when the pregame show starts. So the pregame show's an hour. Then the rest of the day, we all sit there on the set. We watch all the NFL games together. We have every game on a big bank of monitors in front of us. And we're just like fans, you know, except we're just not able to have adult beverages. <laughs> but we sit there and, we, oh, wow, did you see this? Or, what about that? Oh, man, I can't believe this is going on. And then we do halftimes live for each and every game that we have on Fox. Then we do the post-game show. Luckily, by living in California, we're done at 5 o'clock because we have to fill till 8 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, I'm home usually by about 5.45. Try to stay awake through the Sunday night game after being up all day and uh, start it up again next week. That's the long version. <laughs> so what when you guys hit uh, when you guys hit nine o'clock, how much has it changed from what it was looking like it would be, say, mm. Tuesday morning? Yeah, uh, you know, I, that's a good question because obviously it depends on the week. I mean, you have some weeks where big events happen on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, someone you know, gets in trouble with the league or, or someone you know, gets injured in practice or those kinds of things. And I think that's why a lot of it, I mean, Thursday is really the first call that I have with the producer where you really start to hone in on a rundown because you don't want to do it too early because there are too many factors that are up in the air. By limiting it to Thursday, Friday planning, less can change. But things always do change. And also the other thing is we're very flexible. You know, we may decide uh, going into a show that we want to talk about, I'm just throwing this out again, Packers defense against the the. Vikings offense. And as we sit there and we have our meeting on Sunday morning, Howie will say something that's really interesting that we hadn't thought about. Well, that may change the entire discussion. You know what? Why waste, I won't say waste, but why use a minute talking about this topic when we have a much more interesting conversation about this topic? It may be the same matchup, but that's going to change the dynamic. So that changes then what B-roll the producer has, you know, and, and what we do with graphics and those kinds of things. So I think things are always kind of changing as we go along. You said the show's about 70% ad lib. Yeah. Is that normal for yeah. a studio show, you think? For our studio show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for ours, for sure. Right. I, you know, I can't speak for the other shows having not done them, 
But I also have talked to enough guys, and I know that there are shows out there that will literally, and people go, oh, you guys laugh a lot. We laugh because we're having a good time. I know for a fact that other network pregame shows where it's scripted in there, laugh here or high five here. You know, I mean, it's like, well, you're not going to get a natural reaction when you do that. So our show is really, that was one of the things I think they started from day one. You know, this is the 25th year. We've been doing the show. David Hill and Ed Gorin were the guys who came up with the idea. I mean, back when they started this in 94, CBS was doing a pregame show. It was a half an hour. And nobody thought you could fill an hour of, of football talk. And, you know, now we see people are doing three hours or a 24-hour network. Um, but they wanted the natural reaction. And so they said, let's script less. Let's have fun. Let's let guys play off one another. Because if you know your job and you know your sport and you know what's required – you can have a conversation about anything, and it could go here and make a left turn there, and you're still able to follow and make it understandable to people. Whereas if you're scripted, then that's when you tend to get into trouble because, one, it winds up being boring. But, two, I find, and I, this is one thing I, I teach in the offseason a, a, a number of athletes. The NFL has a couple of um, boot camps where players who are interested in, in being in the business, so I do a couple of them. But I always tell them when you try to memorize something, that's when you screw up. Because as soon as you get off track and you miss one word or one sentence, you're trying to find your way back on track. Just know the subject. Just talk. Just have a conversation. And it'll come to you because you and I can have a conversation. We could stop and redo this whole thing. I'm going to say something a little bit differently than I said it the last time. Let that be the flow. And I think that's what we try to do with the show. How much of that... um that ability to to ad lib and to let the mm-hmm. show kind of flow within the confines of what you're doing um, comes from you know that group of guys that people are used to seeing on TV. I mean, the, some many of them have been with the show since it first launched 25 years ago. There hasn't been a lot of change on this cast. No, I, I think that's huge. I mean, if you look at the show, as I said, 25th year, Howie Long, Terry Bradshaw were there day one, so they've been there all 25 years every show. Jimmy Johnson has been there 21 of the 25 years. He left to go back and coach the Miami Dolphins for a brief period, but then came back to the show. I've been there for 13 years, and Michael Strahan's the new guy. He's been there 11. So we've all been together for more than a decade. Name another show on television that can say that. Certainly not with a cast of four or five people, and certainly not one that's doing it live. So I think that it's it's almost like, you know, I would assume, (laughs) you know, being a Broadway actor or a musician. You know, after you've played so many concerts with, with the same guitarist over there, you're the bass player, you know how to give each other a look and you know where you're going. And you don't have to think twice about it. Whereas if this is someone who's new, you're kind of feeling each other out. So I do think certainly the camaraderie of having been together for so long and genuinely liking one another. And I think that's a big factor. Um, people say, you guys look like you're having so much fun. It's because we are. Because we truly, truly like one another. I talk about us getting together and watching college football. In the offseason, we have a boys weekend that we do. It's been Vegas the last couple of years. You know, so we do that. Uh, you know, we've gone to the Keys at Jimmy's house or Howie has a place in Montana. Our wives text each other like high school girls. You know, Chris Long, who's playing in the NFL now, and, and Kyle Long, we've known them since they were kids. So the families know one another, and the guys don't just pretend they like one another when they show up on Sunday. We genuinely do. What You've been there 13 years, as mm-hmm. you said. What has changed in those 13 years about the show specifically? Uh, I think if you look at it, is one, at the beginning it was um, James Brown, who's now at CBS, um, Howie Long, Terry Bradshaw, Jimmy Johnson. So over the years you had 
me to it, and then you add Michael Strayhead. So then you get every personality, every person brings a different dynamic, a different personality, a different nuance to the show. So I think those two, or us two, you know, tweak that formula just a little bit. I host differently than JB does. He hosts differently than I do. Um, the way you ask questions, the way you interact with one another, uh, I think that's one that, that's easy for people to see. The technological aspect of it, obviously, you know, there's probably a lot more video in it than there was back in 1994. One, because it's easier to get, and two, just because that's the way media is now. I mean, you, you can't have guys just sit there, stare at a camera and talk forever, or else it, it gets real boring. Um, and I also think that the difference to me, the biggest difference for the show is when it started in 94, or even when I started on the show in 2006, there still weren't that many places where you had football talk going on all week long. Now, again, you know, the NFL Network, literally, I believe it started in, in 05. So right around that time is the point. So they were new at it. There was no 24-hour football talk before that. ESPN didn't have a three-hour show and, and then a daily show. So now, when you get to Sunday... If you want facts, figures, stats, you've heard them. You've heard everyone in the world on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every other show. So for us, it's even more about information with entertainment. I think it's always been that way. But at the beginning, you had to kind of give some people, people some nuggets they hadn't heard. Now, it's kind of hard to find nuggets. People involved in fantasy football, they know stats. They know figures much more than they used to. So I think that's changed the dynamic of the show a lot as well. Fantasy seems like it's been a huge sort yeah. of changer in the way that people engage it. I mean, how, are there other ways in which you guys have sort of um, – that has affected the work that you guys are the doing? The way that fantasy has affected the way we do yeah. it? No, I, I just think that you have to approach it that people know more. You know, whereas before, yeah, people knew if one guy's a good player and another guy isn't. But they may not know the difference, difference between the guy who's the third leading rusher and the guy who's the eighth leading rusher, or in a, you know number eight. Now they do because one of those guys is on their fantasy team or in their fantasy league and not. So when you talk about guys, um, they understand the difference between a great player, a good player, an average player. You don't have to sell them on that nearly as much. So I, I do think that little things like that, it's just little subtle differences that the fans much more educated, much more educated than they were 25 years ago. What has changed uh, in the last decade or so? What's changed most about you know the league and the game itself? Uh, well, I, I go back to it's probably more scrutinized than it's ever been before, and I think we saw that a lot the previous couple of years with the ratings. You know, and people want to say, oh the NFL ratings are down. I, I will still make the argument, and when you make it and you back it up with numbers, it makes sense. But the numbers for all of television are down. And that was an argument I felt the NFL didn't make strongly enough. The NFL ratings were down single digits each of the last two years. They're up this year tremendously. But they were down before, but the rest of television was down double digits, and some 20 and 30%. No one made that argument because the networks really didn't want to make it because they didn't want to go, hey, look over here because it's not as bad as what we've got over here because you'd be selling yourself short. So I think that kind of got lost in the shuffle, but I think that comes along with the scrutiny of being the most popular thing, not just sport, the most popular thing in America. You know, when you look at it and you go anywhere, you get people that will talk to you about football, male, female, black, white, young, old. And I think that's one of the great things that I love about the National Football League is if you look at a crowd in general, it represents to me, it represents America. 
Whereas if you go with some of the other sports, and not knocking, but I mean, you go in certain cities, it's going to be a homogenous crowd. And, and that really doesn't exist when you go to an NFL stadium. And I go, like I say, it doesn't matter whether it's gender. It doesn't matter whether it's race. It doesn't matter, in a lot of cases, socioeconomic backgrounds, you know. Um, uh, it, it's all over the spectrum. But that's what you see when you walk around in airports, when you go to a mall. And, you know, people come up and they talk to me, and it's people of every stripe you can imagine. What do you, uh, what do you attribute the ratings bounce back that we saw this season to? I, I think part of it is, you know, I, I talk about, I, I think that the story was overblown about how much the ratings were down. Uh, but I do think part of the bounce back this year, which the numbers are up again, so obviously it turned around from something. I think a lot of it has to do with this, two things. One, um, football's fun. And it's gotten fun again. You know, you can have those years where, you know, there's just no great team or there's no great offense. Or there's no young star who's a story. And I think we kind of had all of that going on at the same time. And you had the president of the United States ripping the league. Um, and so all of that kind of converged to to create a pall over the league, I think, for a couple of years. That cloud lifted this year. One, the president isn't complaining nearly as much. But more importantly, I think football's fun. These, you know, especially the first half of the season. When you have games that are you know, 54 to 51 or 43 to 40, Look at the championship games this week. The last four teams left are the four highest-scoring teams in the league. First time that's ever happened. We've got young stars at quarterback, which is the most important position, You know, like a Patrick Mahomes or a Lamar Jackson. People are always fascinated by those guys, Baker Mayfield. Yet you've got veterans that are still playing at a high level, like Drew Brees and like Tom Brady. So I think that this is, is whereas everything converged for the perfect dust cloud, dark cloud um, for the last couple of years, I think that the sun is shining brightly right now because of a lot of different factors that have all met at the same time as well. Were you surprised to see the league end up in the crosshairs the way that it did with the president, as you said, complaining about it? And then also, you know, a, a lot of people who were complaining because they felt like, you know, maybe Kaepernick wasn't getting the square deal. Am I surprised by it? No. Well, let me say this. Let's backtrack, because it's easy for me to say now I'm not surprised by it, uh, because of the world we live in. I mean, I think everything is so polarized right now that nothing surprises me. If you want to go back to the start of the 2017 season, maybe I was taken back, uh, taken aback a, a little bit. Um, because when the, the Kaepernick sitting down started in the preseason, it was a story, but... You didn't, I didn't think I'll say it that way. It was going to be that big. And in particular, what happened is, and I, I think another thing that, that kind of gets lost in the story again, and, I, and part of it is I know um, Nate Boyer, and I don't know if you know his story, but he's a Green Beret who was a long snapper just in training camp but with the uh, Seattle Seahawks. But he played college football at the University of Texas. He served in the Middle East several tours. Um, and when he heard about Kaepernick sitting down, he reached out to him through some intermediaries, and said, hey, I just want to talk to you about what's going on. They met out here in Southern California. This is during football season, right at the beginning of the season. And he said, I, I think that some people may take that as disrespectful. You should take a knee instead of sitting down. Kaepernick heard him out and said, I get what you're saying. I don't mean to disrespect the military. This is not what it's about. This is about arguing against social injustice. So Kaepernick chose to take the knee at the recommendation of a guy who's a Green Beret. I would think that that would allow people to go, okay, look, I may not agree with his opinion, 
but I understand why he's doing it or I understand how he's doing it. It took off on a whole different tangent and people never heard that message because it got spun into the anti-military, anti-police thing, which it was never about. But I was surprised that it went down that road. Looking back now, if this hadn't happened then and it happened now, it wouldn't surprise me because I go back to nothing surprises me anymore, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, the uh, the L.A. Rams are in the NFC Championship game. Um, everyone in Los Angeles can't stop talking about rain. <laughs> Is, yes. How, you know, if you had to put a grade on the NFL's return to L.A., uh, what would what grade would you assign to it? On its return overall, I would say a B minus, and that would be because I would give the Rams a B, and I would give the Chargers a D plus. You know, so I think the, the buzz it has created, the, the, it's benefited from having two teams that are really good. You know, two teams making the playoffs, um, but it's also brought out a, a lot of. It's reminded you that this town will never be a Rams or Charger town. Cowboys uh, played here in the playoffs last weekend. They were, if not 50-50, it was 60-40, you know. So there are a lot of Cowboy fans, but this is a transient city. There are a lot of people that, when the Packers play here, the Packers loaded it up because there are a lot of Packer fans. It's going to be the same thing that Pittsburgh plays here when Cleveland, those national teams, it's always going to be that. Uh, which that's not the case everywhere else. So I think that's something that that awakened the league. I think the league probably knew it realistically, but nobody wanted to say it. Um, but I do think by having winning teams here, it helps sow the seeds of the next generation. You have kids that now grow up. If you're 8, 9, 10, and your team is good in your hometown, you tend to become a fan of that team, which when you're 18, 19, 38, 39, you're buying season tickets to. So if you look at this as a long game, I think the NFL has done a good job of, of establish, establishing a base to get this set. But if you want to judge it based off of two or three years, I, I think there's work to be done. I, but it, it's certainly been, I think, from the Rams' standpoint, better than expected, and from the Chargers' standpoint, worse than expected. As a Bucks fan, it pains me to know that my six-year-old will probably grow up to be a Rams fan. Well, you know, that's what you're, you're, the price you pay for moving out here. I mean, if you grew up in Tampa, you already had sunshine, so you can't say you moved here because of the weather. Yeah, it's, you know, I wanted, I wanted a drier heat. Okay. <laughs> um, what's, uh, what should we expect from, uh, from the Rams and the Saints this weekend? You know, I, I think the Rams have the better talent. I think the Saints are a better team. I think they play better together. They play better off one another. And I think they do a great job of the offense and defense and special teams the way they play. You know, they ran the fake punt the other day. Uh, didn't work out uh, well for the Rams. I mean, for the um, Eagles, it did work out for the Saints because I think it kind of spurred them on. But I, I think their units work well together. I think the coaching staff works well together. And I think the players really get the team aspect of it. Uh, and they're at home where I think they're almost impossible to beat. So I take the Saints in that game. Uh, in the AFC, we keep trying to write the Patriots off. You know, they're like Jason or, or Freddy Krueger. You, you try and kill them, and there's a sequel coming up. You know, every year they're right back here in the championship game. So I'm intrigued to see because I think that they've got a challenge going up against a team like Kansas City on the road. It's supposed to be single-digit temperatures. But I just have a feeling, man. I just, it's like you can't kill them. Brady and Belichick will find a way to win this game, I believe, and get back to the Super Bowl. 
So, uh, so, so you're so you're expecting the uh, Patriots Saints, Patriots Saints in the mm-hmm. Super Bowl, and and if you had to bet now on the outcome, what would what would it be? Well, you know, everything's contingent on everybody being healthy and all those other things. Um, I would go with the Saints just because I go back to the fact that I think that they're a better team. I think there's something going on with that as a unit. You know, kind of like Philadelphia last year. Even when Foles came in, there was something about that team. If you're around them, you're like, there's a, a, something just a little bit different about the way they, they take care of one another. And I think the Saints kind of have that going on. I also think they'll benefit. It'll be in Atlanta. It'll be in a dome. Uh, so weather won't be a factor. Um, they're going to have the, the faster athletes, I think, especially on offense. Um, I wouldn't write the Patriots off. <laughs> you, you, we've learned our lesson doing that. But I think the Saints are the team to beat. All right, Kurt, thanks again, man. My pleasure. Anytime. Showtime's Black Monday and Comedy Central's The Other Two premiere next week. Variety TV critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke reviewed the two new comedy series. So this week we're discussing two comedies that launched this week to varying degrees of success. I reviewed Showtime's Black Monday, Mm -hmm. which launches on January 20th. And which is a show that, when I just saw the marketing materials, assumed for a while was a drama. Had no idea it was a comedy. (laughs) Yeah, no. It's a 30-minute comedy created by David Caspi, uh, the creator of Happy Endings. And it, it takes place in the Wall Street of the late 80s. Don Cheadle is in charge of a boiler room. Regina Hall is his... Uh, right-hand woman, and Andrew Rannells is the young aspirant who kind of enters this comic universe Mm. and creates chaos. So what kind of tone is it, since both of us were so taken aback by this being a comedy, which is probably more on us than the show, um, but coming from David Caspi and with these actors, what kind of... Yeah, what kind of tone does it strike? It's funny because it's an even more elastic reality than his previous show, Happy Endings. Characters for instance, make jokes about things that they couldn't really possibly know about in the world of 1986, 1987. (laughs) Uh, It kind of is written from a very modern, absurdist perspective. And in that way, really fits into the comedy landscape of today, even though it's about a bygone era. Yeah, and so Showtime dropped this pilot pretty early, so I know your review dropped a while ago, but how did you like it? I'm interested in how it's maybe set up as a series versus a movie, which I know is kind of a frustrating comparison to make as TV critics, but sometimes you do have to think about that. No, absolutely. And I do, I was a little disappointed and a little frustrated in that the plot as it's constructed only has so many places it can possibly Mm -hmm. go without seeming, without coming to seem completely absurd. It's would seem to be set up as like a closed ended mystery of what Don Cheadle's character is up to, and for the sake of avoiding spoilers, I won't, and also because it's way too internecine to get into in six minutes, <laughs> I'll leave that mainly aside. But the mystery of what he's up to that culminates in a dead body being found that uh-huh. we're kind of counting down to. The show begins with a flash forward and then goes back to the classic kind of alias, you know, eight months later. Sure. Or eight months earlier, rather. And so it's kind of. I, I Once they solve that, I'm not really sure what else the show can do. I also found its comic sensibility a little mean-spirited. Obviously, we know that these Wall Street boiler rooms are unpleasant places from the Wolf of Wall Street and also just common sense. But <laughs> there's just like, you know, 
it's possible to tell to have a character in the 1980s tell an AIDS joke and have it be funny. It didn't Oof. super land for me. But it's a super talented cast. Regina Hall gets great stuff to do and I kind of have been waiting for her to have a great series role. She popped up recently in a few episodes of Blackish, but I wanted her to do more there and mm-hmm. here she is profane, loud, funny, and really sharp and has some great character moments that hin- that verge on drama, too. Well, let's hope that it can maybe settle into something more interesting. I know that Caspi's Happy Endings kind of did the same thing. It started pretty basic as sort of a we want another Friends, and then it became its own thing entirely. So hopefully he can figure that out with this cast because that is stacked. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that if you were trying to sell a show, even though I don't love this, the strong mystery element, the serialized element, the stuff that I don't think works as well is definitely something a network would bite on. Mm -hmm. So maybe once they work through that, they can just be loose, funny 80s traders in a very skewed sort of workplace comedy. I would yeah, be into sure. that. Cool. So what what did you, what did you watch this week? Uh, I watched The Other Two, which is a Comedy Central show that's premiering after the final season premiere of Broad City on January 24th. That show, I really liked it, and I wasn't surprised because it does come from Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider, who recently were co-head writers at SNL. Chris used to write for Broad City, um, but this is their first sort of narrative show that they are helming, and I was really interested to see what that would be about. Um, The other two is about basically, well, loosely, it's about a kid, sort of Justin Bieber style, who releases a video online that's you know a wholesome music video and he becomes wildly famous very quickly but it's not really about him it's mostly about as the title says the other two which in this case are his two older siblings much older they're in their sort of late 20s figuring out their own stuff and they have not been nearly as successful with their own lives and careers and are confused and jealous and amazed that their little brother has managed to do pretty much everything they haven't within maybe like 36 hours. So it's not necessarily really a showbiz satire, which is what I assumed when I saw the poster. It's a little bit more about these people who are on the periphery of show business. It's kind of both. Um, definitely both of them are still involved with show business. The So the other two are played by Drew Tarver and Helene York. Um, Helene plays someone who used to be a dancer and has sort of lost her way since. And Drew plays um, the brother who is an aspiring actor, um, but mostly is just finding little bit parts in the New York theater scene and also is trying to figure out where he fits in like the gay actor scene. And so there's definitely a lot of Hollywood commentary, but it's not the sort of thrust of it. I do miss the two writers' perspective on SNL insofar as you can really guess who wrote what. I felt like something has been missing since they stepped away. Mm -hmm. And one big aspect that I liked about it was that they had a distinctly gay sensibility. And so it sounds like the other two, which I obviously have not seen, evinces that as well. Yeah, the last two episodes I watched, it's ten episodes. I've seen seven at this point. The last two I watched were written by Joel Kim Booster and Cola Scola. Oh my gosh. Right, who are both great. So this writer's room is obviously stacked and um, knowledgeable in a way that comes across on screen. So, and also, oh, forgot to mention this, which tells you how much I like the show otherwise. Molly Shannon plays their mother. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. That's like burying the lead, but <laughs> I there's know. a million other great things to talk about, it sounds like. Right. Molly obviously worked with Chris Kelly on his movie. Um, other people? Yes. So they 
go back and she's great. Um, and the thing that I like about it is that every time it threatens to get a little bit too absurd, they do kind of root it back to reality where the siblings are genuinely concerned for their little brother getting caught up in this craziness and do look out for him in a way that surprises them too. So I think the show will do well. I hope it does. It's I definitely didn't need to watch as much as I did that quickly, but I ended up not being able to stop. So that's always a good sign. Yeah. And just to put a button on things, the thing you're describing where there's a core of sentimentality is kind of what, aside from moments with the Hall character, I find is missing a bit in Black Monday. Mm -hmm. I laughed at the characters' jokes, but I didn't really care about anything that happened to them. So I'm excited to check out the other two and hopefully share something similar to your reaction. Yeah, we'll see. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. And as always, there's more TV where that came from. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with Bradley Whitford of National Geographic's Valley of the Boom. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News and World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.